Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, this is your word. And we come today to sit under your word, Lord, because your word has authority in our lives. We grant this authority, Lord, knowing that you say it's authority and that it changes our hearts, Lord, into the likeness of who we serve, King Jesus. So, Lord, would you send your spirit here today to minister to us? Open the hearts of all of us, Lord, to hear from you. Make us ready. Make us willing to receive what you have to say to us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I didn't mention, but please keep your Bibles open. I will be referring to this passage uh, as I preach through it. Well, it's evident from the verses we just read that Paul was engaged in an epic race. An epic race in these verses. But all of us who are alive, which is all of us, are well acquainted and well aware of what it means to race, because race is a part of our lives every day. It's part of our day-to-day lives. Sometimes races don't even involve us moving. Sometimes they involve a lot of moving. In fact, we've just finished one race, the Christmas shopping race. So you can uh, breathe a sigh of relief again if you were uh, here at the Christmas Eve service. Um, that's over. Uh, That race is done, and we move on to other races. Some of us engage in racing every time we try to get to church on time, or even every time we get behind the wheel of the car. We race through all kinds of things. We race toward the good life by accepting what we call the rat race as a necessary sacrifice to get there. We're all racing against time, Time is, is, is our mortal enemy in many ways. Racing is really an essential part of living. We race towards what we want, but we race away from what we don't want. And in life, our racing, it ain't over until it's over. We're going to be racing until the end. But what kind of race is Paul talking about in these verses? What's the prize that he's striving for? 
How do we run in a way that's pleasing to our Creator? These are the questions that this passage will seek to answer today. You see, Jesus Christ would have us run a lifelong race of knowing him and the power of his resurrection. He wants us to forget our past failures. He wants us to strain forward to the greatest prize, which is our secure call in him. In a real sense, this secure call is already ours if we're in Christ. However, we must make every effort, every effort, to clothe ourselves with becoming and acting like Jesus in every way during this life's race. To help us remember what Paul's teaching us in this passage, I couldn't help but use an alliteration, so I'm going to give it to you up front, so you can fill in your blanks right up front. Uh, I know a lot of you like to do that. Um, But first, the first thing that we need to learn to do is we must learn to run the right path. We must learn to run the right path. And then we must learn to run toward the right prize. We must learn to run toward the right prize. And finally, we must learn to run as possessed people. We must learn to run as possessed people. When I was in middle school and and elementary school, I was part of a uh, swim team here locally, and, uh, and of course, in, on a swim team, you're, running, you're swimming lots of races, uh, but the Super Bowl of the swim team events was something here in Columbia called the City Meet. Some of you probably know what that is, but that's where all of the teams in the area come together in one giant meet event, race, and uh, they will, everybody will race uh, for their particular uh, uh, stroke, and will uh, compete for prizes. My job as a middle school, middle school boy was to listen for my name to be called for the race that I was going to be in. Now, if you can imagine sitting around all day long waiting for your name to be called, and when you're in middle school, um, you're not the most attentive person, let me just say. So sometimes <laughs> I could miss my name being called. Well, to miss my name was to miss the race and was to forfeit the chance to race for a medal. A lot of us, we also can miss the right race. We can fall off onto different paths or different ditches, if you will, and run down different, the wrong paths. Paul addresses a couple of these in this passage. Two specifically that I'll mention. The first is what I've called the ditch or the wrong path of relative goodness, relative goodness. Now, someone who feels, who runs down this path may say something like this, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough for God. I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough for God. Way back in verse two of this chapter, Paul addresses a a body of believers or body of uh, Jewish Christians who were seeking to approach God on the basis of their works. Outward obedience, that's what it was all about. Outward obedience to the law. Well, folks, God does not grade on a curve. He demands holiness. Listen to what 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. His perfect standard sits in judgment over all of our efforts to be good, and it points us for a need, for the need of goodness that lies outside of us, that lies outside of us. So that's one path that, we can, that we're tempted to run down, this wrong path of relative goodness. A second path is the path that I've called easy believism. Easy believism. Now, someone who is running down this path might be, might be tempted to say something like this. I believe in Jesus, but obedience is really not important. Paul addresses this group as well at the end of chapter 3. He calls this group of people those whose minds are set on earthly things, verse 18 and 19. Those whose minds are set on earthly things. Spiritual laziness is a sin. It is neglecting the pursuit of the Lord. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We should never forget who we're called to follow. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He commands us to obey him. He expects us to be like him during this life. We don't come by this type of behavior naturally. This motivation is something very foreign to us. Listen to what Paul tells us in Titus 2, verses 12 and 14, through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Staying on the right path does involve training. It doesn't come by us naturally. This training does not come at the end of a whip, like a harsh taskmaster, but the verse tells us it's the result of God, the God of grace, bringing salvation to us. Jesus came to save a people for righteous living. Our relationship with him trains us in right living. Avoiding the ditch of thinking that we're relatively good means reminding ourselves constantly of the perfect standard of Jesus Christ who never sinned. We must be perfect like him in order to be saved and only by his righteousness are we saved. Avoiding the ditch of easy believism means making every effort in this life to know Jesus and to obey him, always repenting as we go forward. Practically speaking, this means seeking him regularly, seeking him regularly in his word and in prayer. You see, the right path that we're to be on is a path like this. 
It avoids self-righteous thinking by seeing God's standard of absolute holiness as the only way to God. Did you hear that? Standard of absolute holiness is the only way to God. It avoids easy believism by a deep understanding of the suffering that Christ Jesus endured to save us. It is in, in, in reality, it is verse 13. Look at verse 13. It is forgetting what is past. It is straining forward to what is ahead. Well, what is ahead? What is ahead? Paul is referring to the finish line. The finish line is Christ-likeness. We race for it, but we race along this right path as though we have not obtained it yet. You know, at the end of every prize, there's usually, at the end of every race, there's usually a prize. So if we know that the right path leads to the right goal of Christ-likeness, then our motivation comes from the thought of obtaining the right trophy at the end of the race. That's what motivates us. It's the prize, and that's okay. That's how God has created us. The right trophy at the end of the race. Well, what is the right prize? Paul tells us in verse 14. The right prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A few years back uh, on one of the more popular, probably the most popular, game shows, The Price is Right, uh, a young lady uh, came to the podium to make a bid and she made an incorrect bid for the merchandise on stage, and uh, instead of uh, doing what most people who lose would do and, and just sit there and, and not say anything, she runs up onto the stage and gets excited and jumps up and down as if she had won, uh, because she honestly believed that she had won, but she had lost. Her loss was an embarrassment, but was also a loss of an actual prize. She didn't win the prize that she bid on. You know, in much of our earthly wanderings, we too sometimes arrive at goals with no true prizes. Running for a true prize is essential to receiving one. Paul was running for the true prize of his upward call in Christ. This was a prize secured by Christ himself, by his obedience, his death, and his resurrection. In these verses, we see Paul running so as to know Jesus, to have access to his resurrection power, and to share in his sufferings, which would result in his own resurrection from the dead. So I ask you, how should we run to receive such a precious prize? How should we run to receive such a precious prize? First, by looking intently into the word of God and asking the Holy Spirit to help us to know these things. We must strive, look at verse 10, we must strive to know him and his resurrection power. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 tells us that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. We may become partakers 
of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter's saying that this power comes by knowing Jesus, the very one who has called us, and by trusting the promises that are in his word. You see, to know Christ is to increasingly become like him by partaking of his divine nature. Peter is telling us that we have all the power that we need to run the race toward Christ's likeness. We have that power, all that we need. He also tells us that to know him, we must be able to share in the prize of his suffering. Look at verse 10 also. To know him is also to share in the prize of his suffering. Well, I ask you, why is suffering, or how could suffering be a prize? We all run away from that as fast as we can. Well, listen to what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You see, the suffering that we will encounter by our striving towards Christ-likeness results in the comfort of knowing that the power of God is for us, not against us. Christ's suffering was not just at the cross. He suffered throughout his life as a human being, just like we suffer. As we put aside our worldly cravings and our worldly desires, we are suffering like him. Rather than seeking earthly comforts, we seek to be obedient and to be like him in our normal day-to-day lives. Our shared suffering with Christ allows us to share in this comfort that because of his sufferings, we are his and he is working. And when the race is over, we will attain the resurrection for ourselves. Verse 11. We will attain the resurrection from the dead for ourselves. The ultimate prize is being in the presence of our Lord in heaven. That is our ultimate prize. Paul lives his life in this world as if he has one foot already in the next. And I think that's a model for us. He has fully and finally set his hope on that which is certain in heaven. There is no greater prize than to be in the presence of God in heaven. Nothing in this life can compare to it. Our prize is indeed a priceless one. Indeed, priceless. If we know him and his power, and if we share in his sufferings, thereby attaining a sure resurrection from the dead, then folks, we truly have everything we need right now. This was Paul's disposition towards this world. Is it yours? Is it ours? Do we look at our world in a similar way, with one foot in it and one foot in the next? If so, or if we'd like it to be different from now on, then we need to learn to run as possessed people. Verse 12, he tells us that Christ has made me or made us his own. Now, by using this word possessed, I know I run into danger of some of you probably thinking about horror movies and how certain characters in the movie might be possessed by evil spirit. But there is another dictionary definition. 
And that definition reads like this. To be possessed, to, have, to be the possessed one is, is, is to be one who urgently is desirous to do or to have something. Urgently desirous to do or to have something. Paul was a man whose desire for Christ-likeness possessed him in this way. This was his possession. He desired to be like Christ. But how did that, how did that happen? How did he arrive at that type of outlook? The clue is in verse 12, as we just read. Paul ran as a possessed man because he was first possessed by Christ. Paul ran as a possessed man because he was first possessed by Christ. It is essential, it is essential that we press into this fact. To be possessed by Christ is to have everything we really need. We have no need of pursuing the wrong things anymore. Running, learning to run the race of Christ-likeness as possessed people may mean letting go of the American dream. Maybe it's desiring, it is, desiring Christ more than money, more than cars, more than houses, more than vacations, or even more than relationships. Look at what God's word says about running as possessed people in verses 13 and 14. He tells us we need to be straining forward, pressing on. We need to think as mature people, and we need to hold on to the progress, our progress in the faith. We must be straining or pressing on, firstly. Humanly speaking, this is hard work. This is hard work. We're not promised a life of leisure in the Bible. We're promised a life of suffering. But Paul only looked forward in his effort. He refused to be held back by the failures of his past. And likewise for us, there is no looking back. There is no regret, only moving forward toward our calling of Christ-likeness, but always expecting difficulty and suffering. Practically speaking, this means doing the hard work of transformative Bible reading and study in order to know God. How are we going to know him if we don't read his word? It also means disciplined prayer that seeks the kingdom of God before everything else in this life. It also means sacrificial love towards those around us, putting others' needs before our own. These are just a few things that this journey to Christ-likeness involves in our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, describes the Christian life as follows. The Christian race is nothing else than bondage to Jesus Christ alone, completely breaking through every program, every ideal, every set of laws. No other significance is possible since Jesus is the only significance. Beside Jesus, nothing has any significance. He alone matters. So we must strain or press on towards the goal of Christ-likeness. Next, we must learn to think, according to verse 15, learn to think as mature people. We must learn to think as mature people. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Our expectations for this life, our expectation for this life is to put our personal agendas aside and to live from now on for the will of God. This is suffering, folks. This is suffering. We want to do what we want to do. To do what God wants is a part of suffering. And learning to think this way as mature creatures is not natural for us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Our work is to pray for him to begin to change us in this way. We must pray and ask God to change us into his way of thinking. When our desires become God's will as revealed in scriptures, we can be sure that we are thinking then as mature people. So you want to be mature in Christ, seek him. Ask him to change your desires, your motivations, your dreams even, to conform them to God's will. And then you'll be thinking as a mature believer. So we must, we must strain and press on. We must learn to think as mature people. And finally, we must learn to hold on to our progress in the faith, verse 16. Jesus teaches that our progress is manifested in the good soil of his word. He tells us in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, as for that seed and the good soil, they are those hearing the word, who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The growth that results from reading and obeying God's word is that we will bear fruit in good time. As we continue to submit ourselves to God's word, we will hold true to what we have obtained. And he who began a good work in us will eventually bring it to completion, we can be sure. You see, we never move backwards in our Christian walks, but always forward. But always while repenting of our sins and turning to the mercy of God in Christ. Many of us today are, are tired and discouraged by our lack of progress in this race towards Christ-likeness. You know, I can certainly relate. This is the hardest thing we will ever be part of. But we need to take heart. We need to take heart. The very power of the resurrection at work in this race comes to us as we seek to know Jesus Christ more. By putting aside the wrong races that consume us and by running toward the prize of his call that has already been purchased for us by Christ Jesus himself, we can then begin to run as this possessed people that he's calling us to be. And as possessed people, we know that it is God who possesses us. So we are, we are indeed secure. Then, in the security of knowing that, we, that he will never let us go, we will learn to strain ahead 
toward the race of obedience to his word. We will think as mature Christians whose desires are being changed to God's priorities. We will hold fast to the progress we have made and will make in our race. In a few days, we're going to start a new decade. Will your next decade be characterized by forgetting what is behind, then straining forward towards Jesus Christ? Will this characterize the next 10 years of your life? Will your faith be energized by a new desire to know him and the power of his resurrection? Will we join Paul in straining forward toward this Christ-like goal in the 2020s? Let this be our desire for all of us going forward into the coming decade. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, this is the hardest race that any of us could ever run. But, but yet, Lord, we know that you have run this race before us. Jesus, you have lived a perfect life. You have died a death that we deserved so that we might have a relationship with you. Lord, but now you have called us to holiness. You've called us to this race as if we had not obtained the prize to run the race of obedience, to do the hard work that you call us to do by, by reading and obeying your word, by praying to you and asking you to change our priorities. Lord, we need these things. We need your help with these things. We need to cast aside these wrong paths that consume our time and our energy and to run forward to the call that you have us to run. So Lord, help us to do that in the coming decade, the coming year, in the coming weeks and months and days even, Lord. We desire to, to present to you Christ-likeness, Lord, even in this life, life as we attempt to do so, but with repentance and with suffering. So go, go before us, Lord. Bless us. Help us to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.